If you have your Bibles, open up to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 18 this morning. If you were with us last week as we've been working through Acts, you saw that for the first time, Peter, who was one of Jesus' apostles, sent the message of Jesus to a Gentile area. These are people who were not Jewish. These are people who had no familiarity, really, with, with the Old Testament or the Jewish God. And uh, Peter brought it to a man named Cornelius and his household. They had faith in Jesus. And you would think that the story stops there, but it doesn't. It continues. Verse 1, Acts chapter 11. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? But Peter began and explained to them in order, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man Cornelius's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning, and I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that this time of year we get to reflect on the fact that you, the God of the universe, the eternal Son of God, Father, you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to come and be born of a virgin, to be supernaturally conceived by her, and to come and dwell, to take on flesh. And Jesus, that's what you did. You came to be Emmanuel, God with us. We thank you for this season that reminds us of that so, so pointedly. And Jesus, we thank you that you also didn't leave us to kind of scratch our heads and figure out what we should think about you, but you actually inspired by your Holy Spirit these holy scriptures. You, you inspired Luke to write these very words, to teach us, to correct us, to challenge us. And we pray that you would use your scriptures by your spirit to that end this morning, that you would convict us, that you would challenge us and comfort those of us who need it. 
Do this all to your own glory, to your own fame, and we ask it all in your name. And God's people said, amen. One of the distinguishing marks of Jesus' ministry, if you're familiar with his ministry, it was the way that he taught. It really set him apart from many of his contemporaries. Many of his contemporaries always referred to previous rabbis. They would say, well, Rabbi Ben-Joseph, he said this and that. Or Rabbi Ben-Jonah, he said this, that, and the other thing about Leviticus chapter 27, which was written by Moses. It was always, this is what this man, this rabbi said about this or that thing. But Jesus... He taught in a way that was different. One of the distinguishing marks of his teaching was that he taught in stories, stories that are known as parables, stories that would illustrate core truths about who he was and about his kingdom. Just to give you a sample of this, one of the first parables Jesus ever taught, it's actually the first parable ever recorded by Jesus. It was a, it was a parable about his kingdom, about his church. And Jesus says, you want to know what my kingdom is like? It's like this. A sower, talking about a farmer, a, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. And the birds of the air came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they didn't have much soil. And immediately they sprang up said that since they had no depth of soil. But... When the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And Jesus explains what he means. His disciples first are puzzled by this. Disciples like Andrew and James and Bartholomew and Peter, they ask, what does that mean? Explain, what's the connection? How does farming have to do with your kingdom, Jesus? So Jesus explains. He says, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, that is the message of Jesus, his gospel message, and does not understand it, it's the evil one who comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of that message of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown in good soil, this is the one who hears the word, understands it, and he indeed bears fruit that yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and another 30. This is supernatural growth. You, you can't even get this yield of harvest by modern farming techniques. What Jesus is saying is this is just like my kingdom. As my kingdom expands and grows, there are those who have true faith. They hear my word. They understand my message. They believe and they are converted. They're like good soil. And they bear fruit out of this good soil. Fruit like repentance and holiness. Their lives are changed because they know me. But then there's false faith. 
fake, unfruitful, counterfeit faith. Like seeds sown on a path or on shallow soil or among thorns. These people bear no fruit. Some may appear to be Christians, but they're unconverted. Their lives remain unchanged. They don't actually know me. Their faith, their holiness, their repentance is false. As my kingdom expands, this is what you'll see. The true and false growing alongside one another, wherever my message goes, wherever my kingdom expands. Peter observed this. Peter actually witnessed this <laughs> right in front of him. Remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira? This is from Acts chapter 5. The, the gospel had been first preached by Peter in Jerusalem. And as Jesus' kingdom first begins to spread and expand throughout the city into new people, we're told that there was an overwhelming response of true faith. Over 3,000 people believed and repented and turned to Jesus. I can't preach like that. They devoted themselves to scripture, they, the teaching of the apostles, because their lives were changed. They truly loved their church neighbors and church family. They began to live their lives differently, lives in holiness, lives lived for the service of God. Some people did even the unimaginable. They, they started giving their money away. The Old, Old Testament, it commanded, you give 10% to religious purposes, give it to the temple of God. But these people, now that they are like good soil, they're giving beyond that. Some are giving 15%, others 20, others 45, 50, 55% of their hard-earned income is going to the church. There was one man named Barnabas. He had excess things, excess land. He, he sold all of that and gave every cent back to the church. There was fruit in their lives in Jerusalem. There was changed life. They knew Jesus. They knew God. They had true faith. But then there was Ananias and Sapphira. They knew Jesus kind of in a, you know, vague, spiritual, religious sort of way. They were a lot like, you know, some people today who attend church, not because they know Jesus, but because it's a good thing to do. You know, we do this church thing because it instills good morals in our kids. After all, who wants their kids to be immoral, right? We come to church because it's what good, responsible people do. It's part of our tradition. My grandparents went to church every Sunday. My parents brought me to church every Sunday. And now we go to church. It's part of our tradition. We don't want to disappoint them. That was Ananias and Sapphira. They said, we believe in God, not because they wanted to be Christians, but because they wanted others to see them as Christians. Do you see the difference? But in their heart of hearts, they know they don't have true faith. Their faith is false. Peter witnessed this. Peter saw what was really going on. Their lives hadn't really changed. They, they didn't know Jesus. In fact, when Peter encountered them. He, he had strong words. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to man, but to God. And for those of you who are familiar with the story, you know what happens next. In this terrifying display of God's judgment, God is showing there is a distinction in my church between those who are in the kingdom, true faith, those who are not in the kingdom, false faith. And he says to Ananias, after hearing these words, Ananias heard them and he fell down and breathed his last and great fear came upon all who heard of it. As the kingdom expands, 
true faith and false faith will grow right alongside one another. It's the same story in Samaria. As the kingdom spread beyond Jerusalem and Judea, there was this overwhelming response of faith. You you know, there were people who sought to know Jesus, but alongside them was this man named Simon. He said he believed, he, he said he wanted to be baptized, he was even baptized, but he didn't know Jesus. He wasn't converted. He, he believed in Jesus simply as a means to an end, a way to elevate his status here and now. His faith was false. This kind of faith that says, follow Jesus and you are going to be happier. Believe in him and you are going to be healthy. Trust in him and you will get promoted. Follow Jesus and he'll make you wealthy and prosperous. Follow Jesus, you're never going to be anxious. You're never going to be depressed. You're never going to be fearful again. In other words, believe in Jesus and you can have your best life now. Jesus is a means to an end. That's Simon. That's his God. This God is like the genie from Aladdin, right? The genie from Aladdin, you you rub the lamp, you get three wishes. I want to be Prince Ali, I want Princess Jasmine, and then I want to be the Sultan. Rub the lamp, get three wishes today. I want to have a comfortable life, happy family, American dream. Genie goes back into the lamp. Thank you very much, God. Got what I wanted. Thanks for helping me out. My son Eli, after watching Aladdin, said, I want something like that. (laughs) Me too. Well, that's Aladdin. But that's Simon's God, a means to an end. And Peter witnesses this. He sees it. He met Simon. He knew this isn't true faith. This isn't it true holiness. There's no true repentance here. Peter tells him, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, Simon, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Just as Jesus had taught in his parable at the beginning, playing out right here in front of Peter, as Jesus' kingdom expands, there is true faith, true fruit, true holiness, changed lives because people know Jesus and receive his word. And there is false faith like seed sown on a path or in shallow soil or among thorns. Brings us back to Acts chapter 11. Jesus' kingdom has expanded even more, well beyond Jerusalem, beyond Judea and Samaria now, areas that are predominantly Jewish. We saw this last week that it's now spread among the Gentiles to those unfamiliar with Judaism. And as Peter himself preached to a group of Gentiles in Caesarea, for the first time ever, a Gentile comes to enter the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus. And naturally, word of this begins to spread. People can't believe it. We see that in verse 1. We we read that the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles, that is through Peter teaching Cornelius, that they had heard that the Gentiles also received the word of God. But notice this. Not everybody's happy about this. In fact, some people are quite critical. You see that in verse 2. Peter is heading to Jerusalem. He's about to go tell everybody in the Jerusalem church about Cornelius and the Gentiles coming to faith. But, verse 2, when Peter came to Jerusalem, there was a group known as the Circumcision Party, and they criticized him. You went to Gentiles? 
uncircumcised men, men who are outside of Judaism, men who don't obey the ceremonial laws of Moses. Wait, wait, wait. We need to get this straight. Verse 3, Peter, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? How could you do that? You can't expect the Gentiles to embrace Jesus. Surely if they believed, it wasn't true faith. After all, they didn't do what was required to be in God's kingdom. You see, the circumcision party, they, they had this belief that, okay, you can believe in Jesus, that's good, but that's not enough. You, you also have to follow certain ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. If a person really believes, really has faith in Jesus, is really interested in the kingdom of God, they need to be circumcised. Keep the Mosaic laws, everything from dietary restrictions, cleanliness rituals. They need to follow the distinction between clean and unclean foods. They need to follow the distinction between clean and unclean animals. Follow purification laws for households, purification laws after childbirth. They need to separate themselves from those who have diseases and other ailments, especially diseases like leprosy. They need to observe feast days like Passover, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Booths. That's what true faith looks like. That's what living in God's kingdom looks like. That's how you live differently. That's a holy life. Anything short of that, Peter, if these Gentiles have faith, anything short of that, it can't be real. We saw this last week. Remember, in the Old Testament, God actually did command these things. In Leviticus chapter 11 God said it very clearly when it comes to food. This is the law about beasts and birds and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean and to the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. In Leviticus 23, verse 5, God commanded the observance of Passover. In Leviticus chapter 23, verse 10, he commanded the feast of first fruits. 23, verse 16, he tells the people, observe the feast of weeks. When it came to leprosy, he was even clearer. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, when a person has on the skin of his body a swelling or an eruption or a spot, and it turns into a case of leprous disease of the skin or his body, then he shall, be brought, he shall be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons the priest and the priest shall examine the diseased area on the skin of his body. And if the hair in the diseased area has turned white and the disease appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it is a case of leprous disease. When the priest examines him, he shall be pronounced unclean. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. That's what you should be for Halloween next year, by the way. <laughs> He's to separate himself, be left alone because we don't want others to catch his defilement. I actually do this when you know, I'm outside and I'm picking up my dog Lucy's stuff and I come back inside and Hannah says, come be with the family, come on, I can't, I'm unclean. Gotta go upstairs, watch college football for a couple of hours. <laughs> the circumcision party, they believe that's what true faith looks like. That's the mark of true faith. To be a member of God's kingdom, to be wholly different, that's what you do. Anything short of that, meh. You can kind of chuckle at this, right? How could you be so particular? How could you be so focused on purity and, and cleanliness? But we can and we do do the same thing. After all, who are those people who we consider truly holy, right? 
true Christians, the, the true faithful among us, right? There are people out there, that, man, they don't do anything, right? They, they don't smoke, they, they don't chew, they don't drink alcohol, they don't watch PG-13 movies, people who don't, they, they don't listen to secular music, or, or how about those really holy people? Right, those really holy people who celebrate the church calendar, right? They celebrate Advent and Epiphany and Lent. They get ashes on Ash Wednesday. Whoa, they're different. And, and they fast from meat on Fridays and they only eat fish because, you know, that's not really meat, right? And, and, and they're the real, true, few, faithful. Then there are those who they wear Christian jewelry or they listen to rock music, but Christian rock music, right? And they have a fish on their car. They're the truly faithful, holy, true Christians. And I do this too. It's not enough to be a pastor. When people come over to dinner at the Neyland household, I have to let them know I'm a super pastor. <laughs> not like your grandma's pastor, right? So I dust off my Christian books. And I don't have just one, you know, bookshelf of Christian books. I have three, you know, except for that one over there. That one's Hannah's anyway. And, and I, I grab a hymn book, right? And I put it on, on, the, on the coffee table. So that's the first thing that'll catch people's eye. Oh, I see. Oh, yeah, you sang Come on Along Expected Jesus before I got here. And I make sure the nativity scene is just so. And I get out the coffee mugs that say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That way they know I'm a true pastor, super pastor, super holy. Wow. This happens sometimes. You know, people come and visit. Uh, I'm thinking of a person who came to a church I was at several years ago, and he came and he said, I, I love this church. It, it, it's fantastic. People seem sincere. They're welcoming. I, I love everything that's going on here, but there's one thing that's bothering me. How could pastors, true men of God, wear jeans when they preach? <laughs> I don't know. If you're truly faithful, a true man of God, how could you preach in jeans? You've got to wear khakis. But here's the thing. You know, in that whole list I just mentioned, there are two things that are common. First, none of them are commanded by God. None of them. None of them are commanded by God. And secondly, None of them are marks of true faith. To be sure, now, none of them are wrong to do. In fact, some of those are actually good in some instances, right? Some of them are good practices, and good wisdom would tell you to, to follow some of these things. But let's be careful of saying and thinking that if a person really believes, if a person is truly a follower of Jesus, truly in his kingdom, then they got to make sure that they do this and that. Let's be careful. Let's be careful. Because these things are nothing more than our own preferences and opinions. They have no basis in the word of God. They have no basis in scripture at all because God never commanded them. Criticizing Peter, this circumcision party, they believe if a person really believes, has real faith, if they're truly in the kingdom, they need to be circumcised at a minimum. Anything less? Oh, that's suspect. We don't know about that. But now Peter, verse 4, he goes on the defensive. He says, wait, 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 guys, this, this wasn't my idea, this going around the ceremonial law. I didn't, I didn't command that. That wasn't my idea. It was God's. He says these laws are no more. He says that these laws have been done away with. Verse 4, Peter began and explained to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, 
And in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. This is a vision of a mixture of clean and unclean foods all together. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. I follow the ceremonial law just like you guys. I want to keep the ceremonial law. I told God I've never done that. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. Peter says, guys, listen, God showed me a vision. He spoke to me clearly. What you think is a mark of true faith is wrong. Those laws... The ceremonial observances that dealt with animals and diet and cleanliness, those distinctions that divided us from Gentiles, that's not what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. I ate with uncircumcised men, sure, I'm guilty, but you're missing the point. It was because God showed me, he spoke to me, he said, these distinctions have passed away. They've been done away with. What we once called unclean, God now calls clean. The ceremonial law is no more. And Peter adds, he says, the spirit actually directed me. He commanded me to go with these Gentiles sent by Cornelius. Verse 11, and behold, at that very moment after the vision... Three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea, and the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. God showed me. I saw a vision from God. He spoke to me. The Spirit commanded me. He commanded me to go with these Gentiles to go speak with Cornelius. That wasn't my idea. It was God's idea. He wanted to show us these ceremonial laws are no more. We're going to see this later on in Acts. This is just the beginning. But what Peter saw, heard, and was commanded here by God was just the beginning of God telling his church, telling them that in his kingdom, the Mosaic ceremonial laws are not marks of true faith, nor were they ever supposed to be. The whole purpose of the ceremonial law was to point to Jesus. Clean and unclean. That was given to show we are all unclean. We're all unclean. There's only been one person who is clean, pure, holy, perfect, and undefiled, and his name is Jesus. It doesn't matter how hard we try. We can't keep clean the distinction between defiled and undefiled sacrificial animals. That was given to show there is one perfect sacrifice for all humans who will trust in Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Even the Passover feast, right? That was originally given to commemorate God liberating his people from slavery out of Egypt by the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. Even that pointed beyond itself to Jesus, who is the lamb of God. By his blood, we are saved from the wrath of God for our sins. By Jesus' blood, he sets us free from slavery to sin and the devil. Leprosy laws, 
A person had to be separated, left alone, removed from the people because of defilement. That was given to show that Jesus took our defilement upon himself. He was sent out. He was removed so we could be brought in, so we could be restored. Circumcision is included in this. Circumcision was given for the purpose of pointing to Jesus. Just as the flesh is to be cut off, Jesus Christ bearing our sin was cut off, removed as far as the east is from the west by his bloody sacrifice. This was God's idea for the ceremonial law from the beginning. To point his people through these ceremonies to Jesus. That was its purpose. The Apostle Paul would unpack this later on because this group of the circumcision party, they get this name later called Judaizers. And they're following Paul around, going wherever he went. And they start coming and they start saying to these churches, yeah, you believe in Jesus, but that's not enough. You also got to get circumcised. You got to eat anything other than pig. And Paul, responding back, says very clearly, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. In other words, the ceremonial law. Don't let people come in and insist that you need something more than Jesus. Those things point to Jesus. And he says, these things are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance, the substance belongs to Christ. He was the whole purpose of these things. The ceremonial laws were shadows pointing to Jesus. Now these external forms, these rites, these ceremonies, they were good to do. But now that Jesus has come, they are supposed to drive a person's heart to God. And their purpose is fulfilled. They phased out. They're no more. That's God's purpose. His idea from the very beginning. They were never meant to be marks of true faith. Far from it. You know what makes this so sad? is there were scores of sincere Jewish people who thought, well, I'm Jewish, I've been circumcised, I attend Passover, I I even attended the Feast of Weeks last year, I never make that. I try my best to keep kosher, but you know, uh, uh, nobody's perfect, I try my best. And they did these things, they followed the ceremonial law, and yet their heart was light years away from God. They had external formal, religious, ceremonial performance, but they didn't know God because they missed the point of the laws to point to Jesus. A person can observe all the ceremonial laws and still be damned because they missed the point entirely. Even sadder still, there are Scores of people in the church today who really sincerely think, I was christened. I went through confirmation when I I was 11. My, My family went to church every Sunday growing up. We sometimes even went on Wednesday. I go to church when I can, especially now because I have family. I pay my dues. I follow the golden rule, help out from time to time, you know. Do unto others as you would do, have them do unto you. I go through the motions and they keep up the ceremonies and they have this external shine of Christianity. And yet, and yet, they've missed the point entirely and their hearts are light years away from Jesus. J.C. Ryle is a 19th century Anglican bishop. 
He put it this way. He said, there are hordes of good people who have neither faith nor fear nor love toward God and his son, Jesus Christ. They have no delight in his word, no pleasure in prayer or communion with him, no enjoyment in his house, his people, or his day. They have the form of Christianity and keep up a round of ceremonies and religious performances, but they have no more heart in God than a brick or a stone. Can a dead corpse serve God? Look around the congregation. Mark how little interest they take in what's going on. Observe how listless and apathetic and indifferent they evidently are about the whole affair. It's clear their hearts are not there. They're thinking of business or money or pleasure or worldly plans or clothes or amusements. They come to church for fashion and form's sake and they go away from church to serve the world and their sins. Their bodies are there, but their hearts are not. In some... You can do religious things, but be ignorant of Jesus. A person can do all the Christian stuff and still be damned because they missed the point entirely. Peter's vision, God speaking, the Spirit's command, they're all clear. True faith and false faith are not determined by the ceremonial law. To insist that they are a mark of true faith is to miss the point entirely and lead people astray. Peter's vision was clear. God's idea was clear. The ceremonial law is no more. The whole purpose was to point to Jesus and now that he has come, those are done away with. True faith and false faith are not determined by circumcision, much, much less empty Christian rituals. So Peter's been criticized. He's gone on the defensive now to close. He goes on the offensive. He tells his critics, guys, tells the circumcision party, the kingdom has expanded to the Gentiles. It's the whole reason I came up here to talk with you. I know it because I saw them receive the true mark of faith. Peter says in verse 12, the spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction and these six brothers who were with Peter at the time, they accompanied me and we entered Cornelius's house. And he told us about how he had seen the angel in his house and say, and it said to him, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who's called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I was beginning to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us in the beginning. And I remembered the words of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us, the Holy Spirit. When we believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I that I could stand in God's way? What's the mark of true faith? What is the evidence a person has true faith in Jesus and is a member of his kingdom, what does Peter say? He says, the Gentiles, Cornelius, just like us Jews at Pentecost in the beginning, when we believed in the Lord Jesus, these Gentiles received the same gift. These Gentiles received the spirit of God poured out by Jesus himself. That's the true mark of faith. Not circumcision, not diet, 
not ceremonies or rituals. As good as those things are, they miss the point. The distinguishing mark between true and fake. Kingdom of God or eternal darkness. Conversion or unconverted. True faith, false faith, is whether a person's life has been supernaturally changed by the Spirit of God, whether or not they have God living in them. That's the mark. Look at his critics now. When they heard these things, verse 18, when the critics heard this, they fell silent. Their mouths were stopped. Peter's right. After all, that was our experience. They're thinking right before Pentecost, five years prior, most of these men wanted nothing to do with Jesus. They believed Jesus was a fraud, a heretic. Their hearts were light years away from Christ. They thought Jesus was a condemned criminal, a man no more worthy of attention than people who wear jeans on Sunday morning. Their view of Jesus was lockstep with the world around them. Oh, yeah, he's just one of those guys. But then Pentecost happened. Then Jesus himself poured the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, into their hearts by faith, and their lives were supernaturally changed. These men who pre previously gnashed their teeth at Jesus' teachings, now, now they believe it, they embrace it, they treasure it in their hearts, they live by it like it's daily bread. They once called out for Jesus' crucifixion, now view that same crucifixion that they orchestrated. They view that same crucifixion as the only means by which their sins can ever be blotted out before a holy God. They once tried to forget Jesus, stuff him away, now following Pentecost, filled with his spirit. They wanted to know him, emulate him, commune with him, draw their hearts close to him and grow in his holiness. That was their experience now that God himself lived within them. They heard his word, embraced him by faith. They received his spirit and they bore the fruit of repentance, the supernatural fruit of a changed life. And they have nothing else to criticize now. So verse 18, they acknowledge very soberly, then, to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance. That is supernatural life change that leads to life. Again, J.C. Ryle. The Spirit's work in changing a person's life through repentance will always be visible. It is an indelible mark on a man's soul, a mark of those truly converted. The evidence may be weak and feeble at first, but effects there will always be. Some fruit will always be seen where there is true repentance. Where no effects can be seen, there you may be sure there is no grace nor true faith. Where no visible fruit can be found, there you will be sure is no conversion. If you ask me what does true faith look like, I reply, there will always be something seen in a man's character and feelings and conduct and opinions in daily life. You will not see him in perfection for sure, but you will see him in something peculiar, distinct and different from the world around him. You'll see him hating his sin, loving his Savior, following after his holiness, taking pleasure in his words and persevering in communion through prayer to him. You will see him penitent, humble, 
faithful, charitable, truthful, and kind. This only I say, wherever there is true faith, something of this kind will always be seen. You can be circumcised, and it will never supernaturally change your heart. You can rub ashes on your forehead. It'll never change your life. You can wear Christian jewelry, fast on Fridays, put a fish on your car, and abstain from tobacco, but those will never bring about repentance that leads to life. You may think those things are marks of true faith, but there is only one indelible mark that is on a man's soul, and that is fruitful, spirit-wrought repentance by God himself who lives in you. Remember what Jesus said? Back in that parable, he told his apostles sometime before, what did he say? He said, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty, because they have the supernatural presence of God himself in their soul. True faith and false faith is marked out by faithful, fruitful, spirit-wrought repentance by the Spirit of God himself. My daughter Lainey, um, she's in the second grade, and our school is very good about having, you know, multiple um, parent-teacher conferences, and we've always kind of worried a little bit about Lainey because she's an introvert, so she oftentimes will just play by herself for hours and hours on end. She'll be outside kind of in her own world, you know, chasing butterflies in her head, and we were kind of worried this last year because she likes to spend so much time by herself. We thought, well, how is she going to like matriculate into social life in school? Will that be good for her? And so we went to her teacher for this last parent-teacher conference to Miss Kimball, and, you know, we were a little bit worried, but one of the first things she said, you know, Lainey's grades, they're fine, but what really stands out about McLean is that whenever she's off by herself, she's always looking out for other people who she can grab and be brought in to her games that she's playing by herself. My first thought was, yep, we did that. Yep, we're, we're the ones. Did you guys hear that? Yep. But no, I was really just touched by this. So I went home to Lainey and I said, hey, Lainey, you know, we talked with Miss Kimball and you know what she said? She said, you're always including people. We, we love that. That's, that's such a unique thing. That, that is a special thing God's doing inside you. And you know why you do those things? It's because God himself lives inside of you. He lives in your heart. She said, where? <laughs> but it's true. Like Jesus said, unless you abide in me and I in you, you can do nothing. You can bear no fruit. Not only has Jesus poured out his spirit into our hearts by faith, he's also given this communion meal. And this meal is a reminder that it is true what we confess, that Jesus was given so that our sins can be forgiven His blood was shed so that he could blot out every stain of sin that's on our soul. And what Jesus does is he promises that he'll use these means, this common bread and this common cup, and he'll use it for an uncommon, supernatural, graceful purpose. He will use them to confirm in our hearts that we belong to him. 
that we're part of his family and members of his kingdom. So Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And after he had given thanks to the God who gave it, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and told them, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. And in like manner, after they had finished eating, Jesus took the cup. And he told them that this cup was the new covenant in his blood, shed for the remission of all their sins. And that as often as they ate this meal, ate this bread and drank this cup, they proclaimed his death for their sins until he comes again. And now, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you have true faith in Jesus, and remember what that means. It doesn't mean you have perfect faith. What it does mean is you're repentant. Because only the Spirit of God can breed repentance in somebody's heart. If you acknowledge that you're a sinner and desperately want to turn away from that sin and turn to your Savior, Jesus, then come, feast, take, eat. This table's for you. Jesus wants to use it in your life. If that's not you, then repent. You need to believe in Jesus. You need to trust in him for your salvation and turn away from your sin. But until that day... We would ask, don't come to this meal yet. First, place your faith in Jesus, pray to him, and then come talk to a pastor. Come talk to an elder. I'd love to talk with you and, and talk about what next steps in following Jesus might mean. But until that day, this meal is for those who have true faith in their risen Savior, Jesus. So let's pray. Those of you who are of faith, who call yourselves Christians and, and follow Jesus and have the Spirit of God in your heart, let's pray that God would use these ordinary things for an unordinary, uncommon, graceful purpose. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you gave us this meal. We thank you that it is such a profound reminder that you, Jesus, indeed are good. And that you so loved us, you shed your blood for us. You became unclean so that we could be made clean. You became defiled so that we might be pure. And Jesus, as surely as we hold this bread in our hand and take this cup, that you would remind us, we pray, as surely as we do these things, you would remind us that you are with us by faith through your spirit and that you mean to feed, that you mean to sustain, that you mean to confirm in us this great truth that we belong to you. Use these for that purpose, we ask, Lord Jesus. We pray this all in your mighty name. Amen.